Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 50, Stellar Encounters. So, hey, it's Episode 50, which means we've answered 100 questions now. And what better way to celebrate this occasion than by taking on some truly stellar questions. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Is there a point in a star's life cycle where it is accumulating as much mass as it is losing through its stellar wind? For most stars, probably not. Although there are so many possible variations of star life cycles, you wouldn't want to rule any possibility out. The lifetime and evolution of a star is determined by how much mass it accumulates. As a general rule, big stars originate in dense dust clouds that have large amounts of material within gravitational reach, while small stars originate in less dense clouds where there's just not enough material available for them to grow beyond a certain point. A large star might still be accumulating a lot of mass when it achieves sufficient density for hydrogen fusion to ignite in its core. Once ignited, a star will begin to radiate both light and stellar wind. For big, high-luminosity stars, that stellar wind is mostly driven by intense radiation pressure, pushing on particles in the star's outer layers. While for mid-range stars like the Sun, it's more about magnetic interactions in the outer layers, accelerating particles up to high enough speeds so they can escape the star's gravity. The big stars end up losing a larger proportion of their mass through stellar wind than the smaller stars, at least during the main sequence part of their life cycle. But at the end of the main sequence... When smallish stars like the Sun expand into red giants, it is radiation pressure that's driving that expansion, and when the red giant cools, most of its outer parts end up in a diffuse planetary nebula surrounding a tiny white dwarf, representing most of what's left of the star's original inner core. On the other hand, big stars explode at the end of their lives. The biggest stars of all blow themselves to bits as pair instability supernovae, while less big, although still quite big, stars leave behind a black hole or a neutron star. Anyhow, the question of whether a star ever reaches a point where it's accumulating as much mass as it's losing has to be asked in the context of all these diverse stellar life cycles. The capacity for big stars to grow any bigger is ultimately limited by their stellar wind, driving away any more gas and dust that might otherwise have kept it growing. However, there are some complex dynamics underlying how and when that effect kicks in, since there is a lot of variance in just how big stars can get. Those dynamic factors may include the size, density and metallicity of the gas cloud that the star arose from, as well as how fast it spins 
once it has compressed down to become a star. But the general view is that once the star ignites, any further mass accumulation ceases as a consequence of its stellar wind. So there might be a momentary instant of balance before the infalling mass is pushed back out, but that's about it. And as for smaller sun-like stars, there's really no chance. Their smallish size is defined by the fact that there just wasn't enough material around to make them any bigger. So by the time they ignite and achieve stardom, most of the infalling mass would have already petered out. But let's not leave it there. Every star's story is different. And there are just as many binary, trinary and whatever systems out there as there are single star systems. A common scenario in a binary star system is that one star goes red giant and leaves behind a white dwarf, and then the other star goes red giant and pushes a lot of its mass into the gravitational reach of its white dwarf binary companion. The sudden addition of fresh hydrogen to a dense compact white dwarf initiates fusion of that hydrogen on the white dwarf's surface, turning a dim faded star into a renewed shining beacon, which is why such an event is called a nova. So, somewhere in those steps towards producing a nova, the white dwarf probably was accumulating as much mass as it was losing through its stellar wind, although that's mainly because white dwarfs don't produce much stellar wind in the first place. So, there's at least one example although it is an exception to the rule, where the rule is pretty much no. So remember how this is the point where we used to thank whichever narrator did the reading? Except it's been mostly me in the last couple of years, so the whole thing became a bit self-congratulatory. So, since it's episode 50, it all stops here. Do you mean even the terrible accent, Steve? Yes, even those. And even the text-to-speech voices? Yes, those too. Sorry, Bridget. This is just typical. There is no loyalty. Anyhow, here's another question about stellar encounters. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Two black holes walk into a bar. Okay, we're paraphrasing. But the question at hand is why there's nothing to see when two black holes collide. All you get is gravitational waves. But when two neutron stars collide, suddenly we're all talking about multi-messaging astronomy because there's gamma rays, optical light and gravitational waves as well. You may recall that back in October 2017... Everyone got terribly excited when the fifth ever gravitational wave observation was coupled to a kilonova seen in NGC 4993, a lenticular galaxy about 130 million light-years away in the constellation Hydra. The moment the distinctive gravitational chirp was picked up, the global astronomical community leapt into action. First, signs of a gamma-ray burst were detected by NASA's Fermi telescope and the ESA's Integral Telescope, and then optical telescopes nailed down the origin to NGC 4993. 
Most of the media excitement seemed to be about the observational technologies involved, rather than any new science these observations revealed. In fact, neither the gravitational waves nor the gamma-ray burst provided sufficient resolution to do more than indicate a general direction in the sky. It was the subsequent optical observations that nailed it down to NGC 4993. Nonetheless, the combined observations did confirm the hypothesis that short gamma-ray bursts originate from neutron star mergers, which also produce kilonovae. The term kilonova arises from the fact that neutron star mergers produce a fairly consistent energy output, including a flash of optical light, which is pretty much 1,000 times brighter than a nova. Nonetheless, a kilonova isn't all that bright, still being one or two orders of magnitude dimmer than a supernova. Anyhow, the question at hand is why all the earlier observations of gravitational waves, which all involved black hole mergers, didn't produce any kind of electromagnetic outburst. Well, firstly, we can't be totally sure those black hole mergers weren't accompanied by a bit of fireworks if one or both of the black holes was still surrounded by accretion disk material that interacted during the merger. Nonetheless, physics tells us that if two ideal black holes merge with nothing else in tow, then the whole event will be electromagnetically invisible. The reason for this is the physics that underlies a black hole event horizon. Once something crosses a black hole event horizon, you will never see it ever again. The escape velocity required to get back past an event horizon is faster than the speed of light, so that's never going to happen. And the rate of time progression that occurs within a black hole is so slow that crossing even a centimetre of distance would require the age of the universe and beyond to complete. A black hole event horizon is sustained by the intense space-time curvature generated by the utterly ginormous mass density that lies within it. So even though gravity may be slowly drawing two black holes together, as long as there's any kind of empty space between those two black holes, the gravitational force holding each object together will always be vastly stronger than the gravitational force that's drawing the two objects together. So throughout the entire black hole merger process, Nothing that's behind the event horizon of either black hole will ever come out. So despite there being a dramatic collision, there's no accompanying explosion and no electromagnetic outburst. Nonetheless, there are substantial gravitational shockwaves that propagate throughout space-time. They may carry the energy of several solar masses away from the merger But there we're talking about mechanical shockwave energy, not electromagnetic energy, and that energy quickly dissipates over distance as the shockwaves spread out, so the amplitude of those waves may only be a fraction of a proton's diameter by the time they reach us. And, well, 
Just thanks to the universe in general for putting on such a fine show. But that's it for episode 50 of Dear Cheap Astronomy, and be assured there will be an episode 51. As for 52, well, we'll just have to see. It all kind of depends upon whether you've got a space science question, in which case you should then send it to cheapastro at gmail.com and then we'll provide an answer without all that self-congratulatory palaver you get from so many other podcasts. I mean, honestly. Anyhow, thanks for listening. 50 times now. Steve Nellick, Cheap Astronomy.